Thanks for tuning in to the Recovering Fundamentalist Podcast. We're your hosts, Brian Edwards, Nathan Cravat. I'm J.C. Groves. Man, we are coming to you live from Danville, Virginia. We are at Hope Church in Danville, Virginia. Nathan, Brian, and myself, along with Mark Ward, is our guest for these next four episodes. Guys, it took a lot of miles to get here to sit on this stage at Hope Church in Danville, Virginia. It really did. I think Brian might have won, though. So, Brian, you were, what, two miles to get here? No, it, it was at least five. At least five. Okay, you got to be gotta be precise <laughs> Hey, there. the sacrifice is real. I want to be acknowledged. <laughs> I traveled 400 miles. Nate, you were right at 500, yes. right, to get here. Mark, I think you win it all, right? We use kilometers in Washington State, so I'm not really <laughs> sure, but 2,838 miles. Wow. Wow. To come to Danville, Virginia. And you won in another way because... You win a great dad award. Hmm. JC had kids who were sick last night, and knowing that he had to get up at about 2 to 3 a.m. and make this long drive, he took care of his kids so his wife could rest. And so I think JC won a huge award on that. Kim, if you watch this video, I hope he uh, has earned great points. Thanks, Brian. What do I win? Well, from me, a pat on the back. There we go. All right. <laughs> I'm excited about today's episode. In fact, these next four episodes are going to be absolutely incredible as we are kind of drawing a line in the sand again here on the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. And we're going to tackle an issue today that is probably the biggest issue in the independent fundamental Baptist world, and that is the King James Version. And I can think of no better guest to have on with us than Mark Ward, who has written the book Authorized. And we're just going to break this down today. How was your trip in, Mark? It was long. I'm working on a documentary for Faith Life, makers of Logos Bible Software that I work for. And uh, I went to D.C. to interview Jonathan Lehman at Nine Marks and up to Westminster to interview Vern Poitras and back down to see my sister in Greenville. I drove up here to Danville where they captured Jefferson Davis at the end of the Civil War. I, I learned from my dad last night. Glad to be here. Yeah, this is actually the last capital of the confederacy and uh right here at this spot i can't verify that but with (laughs) within minutes of here and then the old confederate cemetery is actually just downtown not very far from here and the discovery channel has been filming two shows here uh there are people who are still looking for the lost confederate treasure and uh, that's actually turned violent a few times as people have shown up on other people's property and they're searching for the treasure as well And then the other show that we can really be proud of is the show Moonshiners. A lot of that is recorded in our area because of our moonshine heritage. Maybe the Confederate war and maybe moonshining, they're all connected somehow. Brian calls that communion. (laughs) (laughs) 
Hey, and there's also a fun fact. Legend has it that Brian stands in a Confederate soldier's costume and puts white powder all over him, and at night when cars are driving by, he just waves really quick. So it's a... Uh, Sorry, that's Brian Edwards. I'd love joke. to see. That's that's not. <laughs> we gotta uh, do that before we. That's leave. not white makeup. Uh, it's just Brian yeah. Edwards. It's me. <laughs> I'm actually white. that He's Caucasian. White. <laughs> I am. And now the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast is coming live from Danville, Virginia. So that's a new landmark that needs to make it on the website for Danville or something like that. Yeah, we need to make sure and get in touch with the uh, the tourist bureau in yes. this area because this is such a tourist destination. It's a big deal. Oh, yeah, it really is. <laughs> well, today we're diving into what is likely the most controversial issue we have ever tackled. Yeah. I mean, this is the quintessential issue for the independent fundamental Baptist, and that is King James onlyism. And um, guys, I think we're going to tackle this in the way that we tackle every issue, biblically, first of all, and then realistically we're not going to deal in fantasy but we're going to deal in fact yeah and i think that's going to be good for our listeners to hear because it's going to challenge them yeah and this first episode is going to be dealing with the history of the bible we're going to be looking at inspiration preservation and textual criticism so mark a lot of the information we're going to be discussing today comes from your book authorized the use and misuse of the king james Bible. Do you want to open up just kind of by introducing yourself and telling our listeners who you are and what brought you to this important topic? I was raised in a Christian home. My parents were saved as young adults, and uh, I was just talking to my dad last night while driving up here. We talked for an hour and a half. I just asked him to tell me more of the history, make sure I didn't miss anything. And the Lord, in his good providence, led us to a King James-only church when I was in high school. I went to their Christian school. It was up here in Woodbridge, Virginia, actually. And I had, a, I had a wonderful experience. They taught me Latin. I had godly teachers who were self-sacrificial. So some of the abuses that I've heard, because I've listened to every episode of your podcast, they really just did not happen there. I, I had the best experience. I remember one of you said to Dave Young, if you'd been my pastor, I would still be in the yeah. IFB. That's, that was the way it was for me. But then when I went to college, I went to Bob Jones, the leaven of fundamentalism. Uh, and I went right around the time... Pensacola put out the Leaven of Fundamentalism videos, which were attacking Bob Jones for its view of the King James. And uh, so that activated me to the topic, wow, you know, I'm involved in this controversy I didn't really know much about. And I started to pay attention. And I was in a church where my pastor was an excellent expository preacher. I was really loving it. And he led us from using the King James to using a contemporary translation. And ever since then, uh, with the addition of time doing a lot of evangelism um, in the neighborhoods around that church in Greenville, South Carolina, I've had a real burden about this issue, the, the King James issue. Um, I work for Faith Life, makers of Logos Bible Software. I'm the editor of Bible Study Magazine, which goes out to about 100,000 people. I'm just helping people study the Bible. I've always cared about that. And I have a number of seminary degrees and all that stuff. I can read the Greek and the Hebrew. And I, I saw a couple years ago yet more needs to be said about the King James issue. And I found with Authorized, there was an angle that nobody else had really hit. James White wrote what I think is a great book. D.A. Carson wrote a great book. But nobody had talked about the issue from an English-only angle. And therefore, from an angle that's accessible to regular Christians who don't read 
the Greek New Testament because God hasn't given them the opportunity to learn it. So that, that's why I'm here. I've got a real heart of love for your audience. I've listened to every episode because I love that audience, and I, I want to reach them with a message that we'll talk much, much more about. And Mark, we chose you intentionally because of your heart, your attitude. You and I have had multiple private conversations uh, talking about how important this issue is, but even more important than the issue is how we engage this issue. And we know a lot of times from the other side, there's a lot of name calling, a lot of rock throwing, a lot of straw man arguments, and we don't want to do that today. We, we are known for laughing and joking and for our sarcasm on this podcast, but we really want to engage this issue seriously because I believe this issue has a lot of people bound. A lot right. of people are in bondage because their consciences are in bondage because of something that a man has told them that they can't back up with scripture. So thank you for that. But I know you're a, you're a humble guy. That's another reason we chose to ask you to come on. And when people hear that you have seminary degrees, they're going to think, oh, he's just arrogant. He thinks he's correcting the Bible. That is not your heart They're at all, all unaccredited, just, just so you know. <laughs> so tell us what, what your degrees are. I'm asking this personally because okay. I think it matters. Um, I have a Bachelor of Arts in Bible from Bob Jones, the minor in art, sort of graphic design. I still love to do that on the side. I have a Master of Arts in Bible from Bob Jones, and then I have a, um, a PhD in New Testament. And while I was getting the latter degrees, I worked at the BJU fundamentalism file. So I have, uh, you know, b uh, baptized the eighth year of the tribe of Mark <laughs> Minnick. I, yes. I, have a, I have a different fundamentalist pedigree than you do. I come from the sliver, the, the Bob Jones sliver. And there's, you know, on the right edge of that sliver is the world that you're, that you're talking about all the time. Uh, that's my training and my background. I think another important thing with regard to how we're going to approach this issue, uh, there is something that is very real, and it's called reverse legalism. There are the guys who stand up, and we're going to have some demonstrations of that and some different clips, and they mock and make fun and demean anyone who uses anything other than the King James Version. But then on the other side of that, there's the group that makes fun of those who use the King James Version. Yeah. And you would think that they're all ignorant. You would think that they, they've all climbed out from under a rock somewhere, and they're just not as enlightened as everyone else. And what happens in that is a reverse legalism. And, and what I love about our approach is we're not, we're not going to attack the people who love and read the King James Version exclusively. Yeah. And I, I still read the King James every day, and I can't forget all the scripture memory verses that I've learned in it. Yeah, one of my mentors said to me, okay, let, let's not go from King James onlyism to only not King Jamesism. So I'm not, the, the upshot here is not going to be that anybody should toss their King James in the dumpster. I mean, I certainly haven't. I've got it open right here on my laptop. I use it all the time. We believe that the King James is a very good, faithful translation. Into an English that nobody alive fully speaks anymore. That is my point. We'll talk about textual criticism, but that's my point. I want people to read the Bible and understand it because it's been life-changing for me, and I know it can be for them. So I think right off the bat, Mark, what, what exactly did God inspire when he inspired his word? 
I'm looking at it right here, but I've got it memorized in the King James Bible. All scripture is given by inspiration of God or breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. And then it says that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So there's the sufficiency of the Bible. But that first verse, verse 16 that I read, says that scripture, scripture is the object of inspiration. Well, what is scripture? Well, it's just the word writings. But it's kind of a technical term for the writings accepted by the Christian church as, uh, as authoritative, as divinely inspired. And the, the reason to start here, and it's so simple, is that although the King James translators say in their preface that even the very meanest translation of the word of God containeth, nay, is the word of God. So all these good Bible translations we've got here that I borrowed from your assistant pastor here, um, they contain no R, the word of God. But we have to keep a distinction. What was the object of inspiration? Not any translation whatsoever into any language, but the original manuscripts in Hebrew and Greek and a little smattering of Aramaic there in the Old Testament. Those are the objects. And then Second Peter 2, you've got um, Peter saying, that, or Second Peter 1, I'm sorry, that holy men of old spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The, the Bible uses various metaphors, including that moving, which is kind of like the image of a ship being pushed along by the wind. Um, and even the metaphor of speaking. Well, they weren't speaking, they were writing. But we understand that metaphor. They were moved by the Holy Ghost. To do what? To write down the words in Hebrew, Greek, and a smattering of Aramaic. That is the object of inspiration. That is where our ultimate trust lies. So I think a lot of people would say, then you must not be an emeritist. Yeah, so uh, sometimes my King James only brothers, and that's the way I choose to refer to them all the time, because I absolutely believe, you know, the greatest majority of them are my brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah. There's some extremist way out there when I hear some real bile. I don't recognize New Testament Christianity there, but nearly everybody I talk to, I sense this is a brother, this is a sister. Um, and sometimes they think, well, then if you don't have in your hand the perfect word of God, then you got nothing. And I say, no, God gave us a world in which, you know, he could have given a perfect translation of the Bible to each language group, you know, let's say once a century to update it, you know, he hands it to the king or the president of the nation on a special ceremony, January 1st, 1900, January 1st, 2000, but he didn't. He gave us, he gave us good translators in English, many of them, who worked very hard, but he never says in the Bible he's going to give us perfect translations. And I can still be an inerrantist. I absolutely am. I'm an industrial strength inerrantist. Jesus Christ is my only hope, and my only reliable knowledge of Jesus Christ comes from the Bible. What, what other, to whom shall I go? That's all I've got. So, yes, I'm an inerrantist, even if I can't hold one English translation and say, this one is perfect, because the Bible doesn't authorize me to do that. One of the major issues of this that I've been thinking through, and as I have conversations with people all the time via email or over the phone or even in person about getting over this King James issue, is basically how did the Bible get from the original Hebrew and Greek manuscripts down to us? What did that passing down look like? I think I read in, in your book or maybe in one of your talks where you talked about God could have chosen to send down this glowing Bible that floated down and it was in the holy city and you could do a trek to get there once every year and, 
and we just knew what it was, and it was preserved by never getting old, kind of like the shoes in the wilderness. <laughs> it never gets old. It never corrupts. It just floats, and we have this one standard. God ch- could have written it across the sky. He chose not to do that. He chose to preserve it in a different way. Through faithful copyists, in first in Hebrew, the Jews, over many centuries, and then in the Christian church, in the, in the Greek manuscript tradition, and we've got 5,000-plus manuscripts, which is not whole copies of the New Testament, but various portions from very tiny to whole New Testaments. And you look at that tradition, and yeah, there are variants, okay? So among the manuscripts, there are no two of any size that are exactly alike in the Greek New Testament. And even in the Hebrew Bible, we use the Masoretic text. You know, sometimes nearly all King James-only doctrinal statements will mention the Masoretic text. Well, everybody uses the Masoretic text. That's all we have. The, other than the Dead Sea Scrolls. The, the Masoretes of the Middle Ages also copied it with incredible care. They did textual criticism. In the margins, you have these Cathiv Kare readings where it says, okay, this is what's written, this is what you should read. They were that careful. Um, we have every reason to trust that without, um, without claiming some kind of textual absolutism, that we know with absolute precision what every jot and tittle is and no more, no less, and they're all in exactly the right order, that we have text, we can have textual confidence that there, there's no copy of the New Testament out there somewhere that says, actually, um, you know, uh, Jesus was the son of the physical union between Mary and Joseph, or no, Jesus wasn't divine, or, you know, Joseph wasn't the brother of, you know, in the Old Testament of, uh, it wasn't the son of Jacob. No, they're all giving the same faith, um, saying the same things in mildly different words. Uh, it, it'd be nice, I, you know, if I were God, boy, I'm sure I'm, I'm glad I'm not. You know, maybe I would think we want that golden plate from the angel, whoever, to, you know, hand to us and protect it and keep it there forever like those sandals. God did not choose to do it that way. And you can demand, God, I won't trust you unless you give me an absolutely perfect copy of your word and the ability to have perfect confidence that this is the one. And as I think we'll go on to talk about, the Lord simply hasn't given us that level of exhaustive precision. We have substantial confidence, but not exhaustive precision. You know, a little while back, uh, Mark, I did some study on the accuracy of the scripture as it was even handwritten by different people from different places, uh, as people didn't have a book bound in leather like we're privileged to have, but they would have literally literally just little hand-scribbled copies and various things. You know, many of the works used in major universities, even like the Iliad and the Odyssey, there really are no ancient texts, and there's such a degree of variation even among those that exist, and then there's, there are a lot of other works like that as well that are taught in major secular universities literally all over the world. And, and yet the Bible is unmatched in its accuracy. The story never changes. And I would love to quote the percentage, the small percentage difference, but I can't remember it right off the top of my head. But there's only a fraction of a difference, and most of it is misspellings and changes of right. names and various things like that. The story never changes. And so for me, it's not there's this perfect preserved 
text that we look to, and it is the King James Bible. And if you use anything else, for me, it's look how God's word has been passed down from generation to generation, from group to group, from varying educational backgrounds, all of this, and yet the story never changes. There is tremendous accuracy. Only God could do something like that. Yeah, John MacArthur called it an embarrassment of riches that we have. And to be arguing mm. about the King James only issue, it, it really is distracting and divisive. Yeah, you know, we jumped into the deep end here, and this was our plan. We talked about this in advance. I want to say, in a way, all the stuff we're talking about in this episode, about textual criticism, about preservation, in a way, it's not, it, in a way, it doesn't matter, okay? And this is what I mean. The, the King James only view, the most responsible mainstream variety put forth by Ambassador Baptist College, Crown College, West Coast Baptist College, and I've had personal discussions with faculty at most of these places. Um, they say, well, it's not the King James that's the object of God's inspiration or preservation. It's the Textus Receptus, yeah. which is one printed edition, actually one set of printed editions. There are different Textus Receptuses. Um, it, that, and that's the one that's the, you know, the, new, the King James is translated from. Even if somebody came out of this discussion thinking, boy, I, I'm an inerrantist and I just can't see that God wouldn't give us a perfect copy of the Greek New Testament. In a way, I'm thinking, okay, fine. There are other contemporary English translations, however, of the Textus Receptus, the New King James Version and the Modern English Version. Why would those not be acceptable? So we start here with this difficult stuff, but even if you're kind of like, oh, I don't know, we can, you, you, don't, you don't get straight from preferring the Textus Receptus tradition to the King James. There are other translations of it. Yeah, and an, another side of that issue is that I think people want something magical. We want the magical floating book. We want to think that there was some secret society that was preserving this word, and there was this other side that was spawned from Satan, and they were trying to destroy it. But really what we see in translation, if I understand it correct, correctly, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that we've always had the system that God handed down, which was copies of copies of copies of copies, and he has worked in a very I think we could say mundane rather than miraculous, a very mundane, boring way. JC, imagine sitting at a table for 12 hours copying one book, and if you mess something, something up, didn't you have to throw the pen or the scroll away the, or something like the that? The Hebrew, that, the Jews had their traditions yeah. like that. Yeah, so, I mean, imagine the time. That's, I think, probably purgatory for me would look like being an accountant, like sitting there working with numbers all day at a table. And or just copying, I can't imagine that. Yet God gifted people to have minds and dedication and just a sense of the importance of that. And I think it belittles God's word when we kind of knock off on the copies of copies of copies that have been handed down through the generations. Or, or if we insist, like, God, okay, we recognize there are these variants. I mean, you, you cannot deny that. They're, they're sitting there in black and sort of brown, not yeah. white anymore. Those parchments aren't. Um, you could say, God, we demand that you give us a perfect one. But God never says in the Bible that he'll give a perfect one. It, and so it's amazing when you look at them. And I've actually put together a website, kjvparallelbible.org, 
Because what I saw was people saying, there's these two streams. You got your Antiochian stream and your Alexandrian stream. And the Antio Antiochian is the first place where they were called Christians. And so this is the faithful stream. And Alexandria is where they had origin and all those heretics. And that's the bad one. Well, what you come to expect is, oh, well, that bad Bible must be really, really bad. Oh, it takes out Christ's deity. Oh, my, I'm sure glad I'll never touch that. I remember thinking that. Me but too. I made this site to show what nobody has ever showed in the history of the world in one language. What are the actual differences between the Greek New Testament editions that underlie the King James, New King James, and Modern English version on the one hand, so that would be the Textus Receptus, and nearly all you know, major modern evangelical English Bible translations on the other. So the TR and the critical text. You can come and see for yourself. I put them in two columns and I marked the differences. And what pops out at you is not the differences, but the overwhelming perfect similarity between the two. So you come across differences. Did the star come and stand over baby Jesus or did it come to rest over him? And you can say, God, I'm not going to believe any of your words unless you tell me which one of these two options is the right mm. one. That is what the TR-only views tend to do. Without absolute perfection, we can't have any confidence whatsoever. And I say, that's just not the world God gave. God could have done it that way. That would have avoided this whole podcast series, you know, but he didn't. Isn't it true that Erasmus and the King James-only translators had multiple manuscripts that they had to make decisions based upon for the writing of what ultimately became the King James Version. Yeah, um, the Erasmus had to gather manuscripts together to produce his first printed edition, and not all of his editions are the same. Where's the perfect one? The King James translators had at least, this is just by account done by a friend of mine recently, 37 textual critical notes in the margins. I've looked at them, they're right there. It'll say, some copies read. And sometimes it'll actually be the opposite of what the text says. Scrivener, who put together the Greek New Testament edition, this is the boring academic stuff, but I'll try to get it done quick. I like it. The, the one that everybody out there in the King James-only world uses if they've studied Greek um, is Scrivener's. He went through the entire King James New Testament and found, okay, they were using Beza's 1598 Greek New Testament and Stephanus's 1550. When did they go with Beza against Stephanus? When did they go with Stephanus against Beza? And when did they go a different direction entirely? He's got it all listed out. It's almost all utterly minor stuff, but it's not every jot and tittle. The King James translators did textual criticism. Scrivener himself absolutely demonstrates this. It's easily seen. Easily seen, too, that there is no the Textus Receptus. If God wanted to give us every jot and tittle preservation, you know, that I can see this is a plausible reading of Matthew 5.18. He hasn't told us where or how to find it. So that is a big reason why I just don't think that is what he was talking about. When Jesus said, you know, not a jot or a tittle will pass from the law until all is fulfilled, was anybody thinking, oh, he's saying there's going to be a perfect line of Hebrew manuscript copies. <laughs> Absolutely they not. They wouldn't have no. even known how to validate that. Without a computer, you cannot compare two massive texts and even know if they're exactly the same. Which is amazing that that's what we know that text from is the KJVO issue rather than Jesus making this incredible statement that I am the fulfillment of all of this. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think it comes down to this, Mark. The idea of preservation or perfect preservation which you know we sat under preaching all of us did 
that there, there was perfect preservation at work. The fulfillment of that is ultimately the King James Bible. And there's always one passage in Psalm chapter 12 that everyone runs to. And it's sad to say, but in the independent fundamental Baptist tradition, education is, is almost looked down on. Not almost. It is. It is. I, I can remember, you know, hearing, you know, I didn't go to cemetery. Right. And, and cracks being made against, you know, people who were educated, who leaned on their biblical education. And I remember hearing all those, you know, things said. And, and what, what developed as a result of that was the rise of independent fundamental Baptist colleges where men weren't truly professors. They, they weren't truly educators. They didn't have the educational credibility to be teaching whatever subject it was that they were attempting to teach. And so because of that, there's, there's an ignorant interpretation of Scripture. There, there's, there's such a wrong hermeneutic just in its entirety. But when we look at Psalm chapter 12, we see biblical interpretation completely run off of the tracks. Can you, can you break down Psalm chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, in a way that everyone who hears this will understand if they believe that it's a promise of God preserving His Word? And then, by the way, if you take Psalm 12 and 6 as that, you have to make a quantum leap to get to the idea that that's the King James Bible. Right. Even if that passage were promising perfect textual preservation, the Lord still has not told us where to find that perfect preservation. Why would the English language be the way to find it? Why not Dutch or Russian or Chinese? Yeah, but if you go to Psalm 12, you know, you're absolutely right that in the King James only world, broadly speaking, there is a strain and a strong one, depending on where you are, of anti-intellectualism. And they're right about something. Getting a bunch of degrees can make you proud. Absolutely. Is that a temptation that we all face? Any knowledge that we have, sure. But the, there's an equal opportunity for pride on the other side. And sometimes people talk to me about Bible translation, and I've said to them, you know, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't mean to be insulting, but can you read Hebrew or Greek? Well, no. Why does that matter? Well, how can you know if this is a good translation if you can't read the language it has come from? You know, if I had a strong opinion about the best translation of Confucius's Analects, ancient Chinese writing, and, they, and you said to me, you can read ancient Chinese? And I said, well, no, I, I can't actually read it. You know, that, that, I, that's true arrogance right there. Now, not everybody in the King James Only world is that way, for sure. I've definitely run into gracious people. They're the ones who loved me and trained me in high school. Psalm 12, 6, and 7, if I read it the way I was taught to in my King James Only Church, which was, I think, among the best, okay, then I, would, I was taught to pay attention to context. You look at the heading. I'm going to read it from the ESV. The faithful have vanished is the heading. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of men. The, the whole Bible, the whole, uh, the whole psalm is starting out by talking about the persecution that faithful people have suffered. Uh, down to verse 3, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips. Um, let's, you know, this is an imprecation against the people that are persecuting the righteous. Now, verse 5 is where you really got to 
pay attention. You got to look at your paragraphing in your Bible. One problem with King James onlyism is that most King James editions I see people have, they put they make every verse a separate paragraph so that the grouping of verses into actual paragraphs that help you follow the flow is obscured. Not a huge deal, but here it kind of is because a new paragraph starts at verse 5. The poor are plundered because the needy groan. I will now arise, says the Lord. I'll place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Now, new paragraph. You, O Lord, will keep them. What's the them? Them is a pronoun. What's the antecedent of the pronoun? What does it point back to? Well, in English, we usually go with the most recent noun that kind of fits. And that's why the King James only interpretation of this passage is so persuasive to people, because that would be the words. The words are the things that he's going to keep. But actually, this is one of those times when if you look in the Hebrew, which unfortunately simply is not taught hardly ever in King James only institutions, and I have checked. I'm not making a blanket statement that I haven't done the work for. I have asked. They don't teach it very often. Very few people know it. The, the gender of the word them, the grammatical gender, points back not to the word words, but to the poor. Yes. You, O Lord, will keep them, the poor. You will guard us, or actually it's the word him in Hebrew, which is a little confusing, but still cannot grammatically be pointing back to the words. And I have tried to graciously say this to the few King James-only individuals who have some Hebrew training, and I just can't ever get a clear answer for them. Well, they, they, the, the one thing they say is, well, there are places where there's a gender mismatch. And I say, fine, but I would need the context to show me that this is one of those places. And the context, it, to me, it's like, if I'm reading down through here, God's giving all these promises about the poor. You, O oh Lord, will keep them. It, it would be like just radically changing the subject we're, you're going to have a perfect line of manuscript copies. Well, that's not what the psalm is about. That's my read of Psalm 12. So you just called out the problem, ultimately. Have any of the three of us ever sat through one of those messages where the entirety of the psalm was ever dealt with? Never. And I've heard no. this preached on, Many I would times. say, hundreds of times, literally. Hundreds of times. Yeah, did you ever hear the rest of the psalm? Mm -hmm. I didn't. So I, I have a lot of mercy for and understanding of my King James only brothers because I was there and I saw the benefits of that world. I feel like their evangelism was very faithful. I learned to talk to people and give them the gospel there in that world. They pushed back against worldliness in a way that, yeah, it could be legalistic, but also for me, saved me from watching stuff I should not have sure, watched, and yeah. I'm really glad for that. Okay, so I have a lot of mercy and understanding. Where my own righteous soul is vexed is when people mishandle God's words. God's word does not say in this passage, I'm going to preserve a perfect line of manuscript copies, and you be on the lookout for it, and faithful people are going to have access to it in every age. That is not what this passage is saying. The Hebrew makes it at least sufficiently clear, if not perfectly clear. And I... I have to see sin somewhere in a widespread, obvious misinterpretation of this passage that even some of the most responsible ones out there, like Chuck Surratt, does not use this passage. Yeah. If I remember right, he said, I, I really don't think it's talking about the, the words of Scripture. But 
that was the only one I can think of who's ever said that in the King James only world. Anytime we take God's word out of context, we dishonor the Bible. And, and I've seen over and over and over again, the light came on for me after five or six years of studying this issue in depth, after years of being indoctrinated. And the light for me was the KJV only issue. I believe I, this is a conviction for me. It dishonors God's word more than just about anything else I've seen out there. And I do appreciate, I do appreciate their commitment to the authority of the Bible. I yes. learned that in an IFB church. Amen. Me and too. I love that they have a high view of scripture. Yes. But some of their arguments turn around on themselves right. and dishonor the Bible. Yeah, it's, they lift it up high as well they should. And then they try to push it a little higher than God did. We're, God didn't actually say you're going to get a perfect Bible translation, but we want that. We're going to push it higher. But and, that's actually pushing it down. You're actually turning it into what you want it to be. And see, my view is a little different than even yours and, and yours. If you hold the Bible in high esteem, then you preach the Bible. Yes. The tradition that I grew up in, rarely did they ever preach the Bible. They would find a verse with a good phrase that supported what they wanted to say and then they would read and they would say something like this. Well, tonight we're only going to be focusing on this one phrase. Yeah. They would read that phrase and then they would start, you know, just preaching whatever it was that was their opinion. But to preach the Bible out of context is, is to not preach the Bible. Yeah, yeah. Now, I have to say, and I talked about this with Nathan on the phone months ago when I was first, we were first talking about me coming on here. At first I was like, uh-oh ex-evangelicals, you know, recovering fundamentalists. I don't want to have anything to do with this. But then my friend told me, no, no, you got to talk to this Nathan guy. So we talked. I immediately sensed, not only are you a pastor, but you're a gracious and a humble man. And we just hit it off just like that. I really enjoyed that conversation outside of Starbucks in Burlington, Washington. Um, but I have to say, in my sliver of fundamentalism that I got into at Bob Jones, I heard the best expository preaching that I'd ever heard. Let's not forget, there are multiple slivers, okay? Yes. And uh, so fundamentalist to me still means something a little different than it does to you. But I grew up in that world in high school, and it was that way. Thankfully, I feel like God, like he restrained Abimelech from touching Sarah, I feel like he restrained so many very sincere pastors out there from going way off the rails because they do exactly that. They preach things that aren't in that passage. Thankfully, usually, they still preach things that are true in the rest of the Bible, but they've severed the connection between everybody look at that. This is what this says. And so even though they say, everybody read your Bibles. The Bible is your final authority. You can come into my office and question me anytime if you have an open Bible. That's all excellent. But they don't model, usually, they don't model for people how to actually read the Bible faithfully and carefully in their preaching. So, Mark, does the Bible promise perfect preservation? So, we, we talked about Psalm 12, 6, and 7, and I'm saying it does not promise it there. We, I mentioned Matthew 5, 18. To me, that's the passage that comes the closest and could plausibly be read that way. Why don't I read it that way? Because Jesus says, not a jot or a tittle will pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Well, first, in context, the, the, uh, the contrast he draws is not between having every jot and tittle and not having them. It's between the effectuality of those words and their falling to the ground, okay? And then I just have to ask, okay, if every jot and tittle is preserved, like where? And the King James only folks, my brother's there, will talk this way. 
I heard David Cloud, I read him just recently saying, I don't trust Westcott and Hort to know where the word of God is preserved today. And R.B. Ouellette will say, um, we have an absolute scripture, every jot and tittle. Well, they can never actually make the connection between that promise and the King James without making several leaps. Let me, let me spell out yeah. those leaps for you. First, they have to make the leap that Jesus was actually talking about perfect textual preservation in a particular line. Then they have to leap to, well, what line is it? And how do you explain all the other variants in the manuscript tradition that nobody denies? Okay, where, how was a person, in, a Christian in Syria supposed to find this in the year 421? Okay, then they have to make the leap that goes to a particular printed edition. And then they have to, uh, well, they usually go to the, the TR, but almost never does any of them in my experience know, well, there are multiple TR editions. Which one is the right one? Well, the one that King James used. Well, actually, there's another leap because that one didn't exist until 1881 when Scribner went to the King James, looked at Beza and Stephanus, and figured out what textual critical decisions they must have made and reconstructed a Greek New Testament based on that. He wasn't retranslating. He was reconstructing it. This is all you know, not disputed by the people who actually uh, read what Scrivener has to say. Then you have to make this further leap that um, the, the King James has been used by the Lord the most. So that must be the set of textual critical decisions that we should stick with. And I just have to say, okay, if every jot and tittle is your standard, absolute perfection, no more, no less, all in the right order, that's the only way I can read perfect preservation, then why would you, why would you say textual criticism is wrong when the King James translators themselves did it and Erasmus had to do it to make the printed editions? And why not appeal to the decisions made by the Dutch translators around the same time as the King James translators or to the ones that Luther made? And he made some different ones. Look at James 2.18. Look at the margin, kingjamesbibleonline.org, and you'll see they had that same marginal reading that was used by the Dutch. God used that Bible translation to bring the gospel to the Dutch. Why does English get to be put to the top? Why, why do these translators get to be the final people to ever do textual criticism? Don't ever touch it again. We can't make any adjustments whatsoever. The Bible doesn't say that. I mean, you can, you can make all those leaps... <laughs> In a way, a lot of them make sense, especially if you're thinking God has to give us a perfect set of jot and tittles. But once you realize how many leaps you've made, especially that final one to me, why English? Then I feel like I, I'm not obligated by the Bible to believe in perfect textual preservation, you know, textual absolutism, or that this one set of translators made the final set of textual critical decisions. Well, you know, what you're saying right now is that words have implications. And when people who have authority use words, then there's greater implications. Um, I remember when I was young and growing up in church, I hated the innkeeper in Bethlehem because Mary and Joseph, you know, Mary's pregnant. They walk up to the door and in a good southern accent, you know, he yells at them, there's no room in the inn. And so I'm like, man, you know, this guy was hateful. When you actually read the text, they didn't stay in the inn because there was no room. We, we never know that the guy screamed at them. I heard so many Christmas messages that <laughs> leaned in that direction. I couldn't stand that guy. In the same way, Westcott and Hort were made out to be 
terrible, horrible people. One of the things that was said about them was that Westcott and Hort believed in the baptism of infants, which is a statement of ignorance because those who translated the King James Bible also believed in infant baptism and were employed by the government church, by the way, that was started for the sake of a divorce and a remarriage. So there's, there's all of this corruption and, and yet somehow Westcott and Hort have been made out to be the bad guys. There's people who have no knowledge of Westcott and Hort whatsoever. They've grown up in independent Baptist churches and they believe there's antichrist Westcott and Hort. Right. Yeah. Hort was somebody that we would not have wanted to hang around with or have preach in our church. Um, he was something more of a skeptic. He was very knowledgeable. Westcott you wrote commentaries that evangelical pastors still use today, especially in the book of Hebrews, I, I usually hear. Um, one of my faithful conservative evangelical friends, who is a world expert on New Testament textual criticism, named his son Westcott. Why did he do this? Um, a number of reasons. The main one is that if you actually look at their work, if you actually read what they said, if you can set aside now if we've successfully pointed out, uh, argued that the Bible doesn't promise perfect preservation, then somebody has to come along and tell us, help us figure out, well, then how do we decide among the variants? And Westcott and Hort did incredible work in that area. I've read their introduction. They were extremely diligent. But then it, to say that Westcott and Hort are sort of like this fountainhead, you know, and the whole stream is poisoned from them, is kind of like saying, which is actually, this part is true, the, the Wright brothers, Wilbur and Orville Wright, I listened to a, a, a biography about them, fantastic, David McCullough. Um, they had some weird religious views, so I'm not going to fly in a plane. <laughs> the question is not, did the people who did this have sins and problems? The question is, does it fly? Do these arguments that they use fly? That's why their names are so huge, because their arguments have been accepted by nearly all, I'm going to say 98% of evangelical Christians who believe the Bible, who believe the gospel, and can read Greek have accepted Westcott and Hort's arguments. Could we, I'm in that 98%, absolutely, could we all be wrong? Sure, we're depraved too. We've got sin too. Um, but it's the arguments and not some sort of, you know, those arguments have flown and they've been refined and they've been used by faithful people for a long time. Um, to say that they are, um, you know, somehow all, everything that, that Westcott and Hort touched and everything in that stream is now corrupted, it just doesn't work. It, it just doesn't work. Mark, I heard you say a minute ago that you liked the New King James Version. According to Stephen Anderson, the writers of the New King James peed sitting down. Um, I'm kidding. We can take that out. He <laughs> did say that. All right, there we go. Uh, but I did. I did hear you say a minute ago that you like the New King James. Aren't Aren't there a bunch of mistranslations in the New King James version? So I I really love my King James only brothers, and you know I can just get up here and say no, and that's what I believe. No. Now you've got my authority versus your pastor's authority, or versus Stephen Anderson's authority. Uh, instead, I'd like to ask. Let, let's ask another question, because you know what? I'm not insulting you, dear King James only brother. You cannot know on your own, because you cannot read Hebrew and Greek, 99.9%. .9%. You know, most 
Christians who use the New King James can't read Greek either. Everybody, just about, you know, most of us have to trust somebody. Why should you trust the King James or the New King James translators against uh, your pastor? Well, I, I would just want to start there. Can you at least acknowledge, my dear brother, that you cannot make this determination on your own? You have to trust somebody. So who should you trust? Well, that's a really hard question to answer in all of life. You know, talk about masks and social distancing. Which epidemiologist should we trust? Let's not get into that, by the way. Please. <laughs> that's, that's an example. It's been bewildering for people. I really feel for them. I have felt confused at times. And as a church leader, what do we do? It's really tough. The degrees listed behind the, the names of the New King James translators, that's one vote in their favor. The degrees listed behind the names of the King James only leaders is one vote against their favor. It's not absolutely determinative, but if you actually just sit down and look, look at how many honorary doctorates are rife in King James only institutions. Small thing here, a demon is a professional degree, not an academic degree. Go ask the demons. Good guys, I know some, uh, in King James only colleges. How much Greek and Hebrew did you take? You're gonna get, you're gonna see a picture quickly. Read the commentaries written by the New King James translators, the ESV translators. You tell me that Vern Poitras, who I just got done interviewing for something I was doing up at Westminster, isn't godly and knowledgeable in a way that you rarely experience. At the very least, acknowledge, that guy knows some stuff I don't know. At the very least, be humble when you say, well, I've, I've heard from people I trust that there are mistranslations in it. That, and that'll help you clarify that the question you ought to be now asking yourself is, who should I trust? You say, preacher, don't you believe those original manuscripts way back there are superior to this? I don't know. I've never seen them for one, right, right. and you haven't either. Right. And two, I couldn't read them if I had them. Right. And three, they now have got chapters and verses. It's yes, really tough to look anything up. Right. Right. Let me just pause right here and get radical for all the people on the internet that want to say something about it. Let me get radical here for just a minute. Yeah. If I was standing in this pulpit tonight and unseen hand dropped out the golden world and set down the literal scrolls that literally Moses wrote on and the Holy Ghost breathed on and that David wrote on and I had my King James Bible in one hand and Greek and Hebrew scrolls in the other hand, I'd push them to the side and I'd preach out of the book yes, I preach out of so mark you were talking about the sliver that you came from uh, josh tice broke it down into six at least six different divisions in yeah. the ifb yeah. world so this is the sliver that we came from talk us through what you just heard yeah, uh, I have gathered that because I've listened to every one of your episodes <laughs> that you come from a different sliver and that you come from that. And let me just say something here, like praise the Lord that you believe in Christ and believe in the Bible and didn't just say, forget this, because that is sin. That man was standing up there proclaiming a depth of ignorance and admitting to it and shouting about it arrogantly. The scary thing is we grew up in a tradition where men are ignorant, but they're arrogant. When you combine ignorance and arrogance, that's a dangerous thing. Absolutely. 
Again, not everybody in that world is that way. My church in high school was not that way. Praise the Lord. We wouldn't have gone there. My dad would not have taken us there. There was real good there. It's my belief that the guys that are in the IFB that are not that way, they should be the ones calling these guys out that are. Yeah, and I, I know yeah. some of them do. But listen to, I mean, what the guy said was, I don't want those original manuscripts. They do me no good. Why? Because I can't read them. Okay. You just proclaimed your ignorance there, brother. How can you know what is a good translation of the Greek and Hebrew if you can't read them? Okay. And then he said, and they don't have verse numbers, so I couldn't find anything anyway. Well, you know, the first like 1,500 years of the church's history, there were no verse numbers. Somehow people managed. They still understood the gospel. But to say, I don't want what God gave us, which is the Hebrew and Greek, inspired. I want this thing I can hold in my hand that is tangible. That's where we get into that, boy, it it's really hard not to call that idolatry. You want to be charitable. You want to be careful. You don't want to be extreme against people. But that's taking the thing God gave us saying, I don't want that. I'm going to set this thing up as a sacrament instead. That's, yeah. That is thin ice. And if anybody thinks this isn't a relevant issue, we've got another video from last week at a camp meeting in the parking lot of a church and Bible college in California. And Larry Brown has a few things to say about this issue as well. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. David made that move in Psalms 12, verse 6 and 7, when he talked about the word of God and said, the words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. He made that move and he says, we'll always have the word of God. We'll always have the word of God. David made that move in Psalms and Paul made that move in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 16 when he said all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness. And by the way, the scripture he referred to was a scripture he just referred to, to a verse before that when he told Timothy and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures. Do you know that the scriptures that Paul said was inspired was given to young Timothy copies from centuries past. The originals had been, uh, had been gone for centuries when Paul said uh, that Bible that I'm telling you about, Timothy, it's inspired of God. That's what he's saying here. Somebody said, well, you act like the King James Bible is inspired. Look, we, and somebody said, well, you believe in the re-inspiration of the Bible. Listen, when something's inspired of God, it don't... You, what God gives life to don't die. And is inspired of God. Uh, it, it, it don't have to be re-inspired. It was never uninspired. Thank God for that. I'm talking about Jesus made that move when he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Uh, and, and he was talking, he wasn't talking about uh, pieces of scripture here and yonder. Uh, he's talking about is written of me, Jesus said, in the volume of the book. It is written of me. Uh, aren't you glad we've got a book? And then he said in John 10, 35, the scriptures cannot be broken. You can't, you can't just break it up. And, and look, we're talking about a volume. We're talking about a book. You say, oh, the word of God is rendered in the sum of many translations and pieces of here and yonder. So, Mark, when I was growing up, my, my mama liked to make quilts. 
And so what she would do is take a bunch of scrap pieces of fabric and she would sew them all together and nothing matched, but everything made one quilt. That's what he just did. Yeah, I don't know if anybody else caught it, but he's basically contradicting himself in that video. He starts talking about the copies of the copies of the copies of the copies were inspired. By the way, those weren't in one bound book. They're in scrolls all the way up to probably the 300s, 400s when they started putting them or that became the dominant way of binding them in a book, the codex. So up until that point, nobody had one bound copy of God's work. So they had copies and copies and copies of scrolls that were inspired. Then in the end, he says, by the way, I'm talking about a book, one bound book. We have it here. So he's arguing both sides of the point. You really can't do that and be intellectually honest. Yeah, he's making quite a few leaps there. He's relying on a lot of previous discussion. Some things that come out to me, you know, first, his misuse of Psalm 12, 6, and 7. It goes by so fast, but that is not what that passage says. Another is that he said, he was saying that when, when Paul said to Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and, you know, you've known this from, from your childhood, um, he's saying that that must mean that whatever copies of the Old Testament, in this case, that Timothy had, were perfect. Well, that doesn't have to mean that. You know, inspiration does not demand perfect preservation. That makes sense to us, but that is not the world God has given us, and he's never actually said that's what he's going to give us. Matthew 4, um, here's something interesting. Actually, a recent, very recently ex-King James-only friend of mine who's struggled with this and still is kind of in the middle— he said to me, you know, I observed, I looked up Matthew 4.4, 4, and actually Luke 4.4 4 is also the same quote. Um, it's Jesus in the temptation of the wilderness. It quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. Well, Deuteronomy 8.3 actually says it slightly differently than what, than what Jesus said. Um, for one thing, Jesus leaves out a couple words, which is fine. You know, we summarize quotations. But he, in the Old Testament, it says, You'll, um, you will live by every going out from the mouth of Yahweh, the Lord. But in the New Testament, Jesus says you'll live by every word, which is a little bit more specific than the Greek, although I mean, than the Hebrew, but it's an excellent translation. Of course, Jesus made a great translation of the Old Testament. Uh, but then he says, by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. If he, had, if he were intending to communicate this kind of absolute textual precision, um, the kind of fascination with the letter that is evident in a video like that. Why would he change the Lord to God? Um, the, yeah, I, I feel like it would like take me two hours to just unpack every implicit claim in that little clip. I think what we see with guys like that is they have been in an echo chamber for so long that a lot of their preaching has become clickbait. They are saying things just to get the amen, the applause, when they don't think about the actuality of what they're saying. And, and actually, what to me that says is, and this might sound funny at first, he doesn't love me. He doesn't love me enough to talk to me in a way that might actually persuade me. I can't listen to the clickbait headlines anymore. I've asked questions. Is that really what Matthew 4, 4 means? And instead, I just keep getting these memes repeated and repeated as I feel like I have to always say, there are some people who will talk to me and I can have an actual conversation with. But the leaders, I can't have conversation with. I, I just get the slogans anymore. 
if their doctrine is really true and I'm really wrong, I, I want to repent. I want to do what's right and biblical. Yeah. Like, talk to me. I'm a brother in Christ. You've got to go back and forth with me and not just keep shouting your slogans. Mark, before we get away from this first episode and as we start to wrap this up, as we're dealing with inspiration, preservation, can, can you deal with the difference in inspiration and illumination? A couple of weeks ago, my good friend, Andrew Sluter, had <laughs> made a video about inspiration, and he says not only does he believe in double inspiration, but he, le- he believes in multiple inspiration, where every time you open the Word of God and you read it, the Holy Spirit gives you an understanding, so God again inspires it. That, to me, betrays a deep misunderstanding of inspiration. Inspiration is the original breathing of God's Word, the revelation from God Himself. Illumination is when the Holy Spirit helps us to understand what God inspired. Can you explain the difference and how that's, how that's been misunderstood? Yeah, I mean, you've got your inspiration passages that we already talked about at the beginning, and then your illumination passages would, I think, be more like when Paul says, um, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in all things. And there's your classic, what's called compatibilism, that your effort is absolutely required. Think over what I say, but... God's action is ultimate, for the Lord will give you understanding in all things. Jesus said in John 16, the Spirit will guide you into all truth. But even in the New Testament, what does the Spirit will guide you into all truth appear to mean? How did that work out among the Corinthians, for example? It does not appear to be promising then that every individual Christian will have a perfect understanding of the Bible as soon as they open it up. Um, We pray for illumination. We work hard in our hermeneutics and learning our Greek and Hebrew because Paul said, think over what I say. And then when we come to an understanding, we humbly acknowledge there are some other people out there who appear to be faithful, and especially in, like, say, eschatology. We were talking about Nathan in the car. um, And they come to different conclusions. Or you look at the grammar and you say, you know, the Lord, he just didn't choose to be exhaustively precise. Matthew 6, 27 when Jesus said, um, uh, which of you by thinking can add a cubit to his stature? The Greek is ambiguous. It could mean which of you can add a span to his life, like time to his life. Could be either one. Which one is it? Well, some people go this way, some people go that way. Are we going to say that those people have the spirit and those people don't? You know, this, this age is not a time when God, uh, God gives us that perfect understanding. First Corinthians 13 says that, when I see face to face, then I will know, even as also I am known. Now, my finiteness and my fallenness limit me so that I have to pray for illumination. And though I'm going to stand and preach God's word confidently, there's a level of humility that I've got to bring to it. I'm a servant of the word, and especially I'm, I'm extra humble when I recognize good people I love and respect who show every evidence for, of care for the Bible. They disagree with me on this point. I don't, I don't see that kind of attitude <laughs> within my King James Only Brothers, like, almost ever. Yeah, I think what we most frequently see is a militant attitude when it comes to this point. And, um, you know, Nathan and I don't share that friendship, but the idea that we are inspired every single time we open the Bible, for me, Nathan, that is scary because, you know, 
the Bible ends with the book of Revelation. It's, it's kind of like the people who are saying now that they're receiving fresh revelation. Right. It's, it's under that that the book of Mormon was written. It's, it's under that same concept, that same idea. When we look into God's word, we see that it ends with the revelation that God has given us in his word, what he desires for us to know and what he desires for us to have. So that whole idea of being inspired every time we open the Bible, it sounds to me, and maybe I'm misguided, but it sounds to me a lot like I'm receiving fresh or new revelation. Yeah, you're, you're right. It's actually also Bartianism. It's neo-Orthodox. You know, that word got tossed around in fundamentalist circles that I was in, and I never really got an explanation of it. When I actually looked into it, that really is what a lot of them believed, that you know, the Bible isn't God's word until actually it comes to me in this moment of experience, and then God uses it to reveal truth to me. And that gave them the license to do what Jesus said to the Pharisees, frankly, to make void the word of God by their tradition. You can, go, you can do that in a leftist direction like they did, and you can do it in a rightward direction like the King James only folks have done. Well, it comes down to, are we going to be Mishnah or are we going to be Torah? A lot of this have, has been traditionally passed down from person to person, from generation to generation, and there's no real biblical authority to back it up, but we're Mishnah. We're going to believe the oral tradition that's been passed down to us. Are, are we going to live in that world or are we going to be Torah? No, it has to come from God's word, and right. we're not going to believe it unless it's the word of God. One of the unhealthiest things, unfortunately, in my mind, about the world that I was in in those high school years was that we said, we're Baptist, which I still am, by the way, absolutely, I'm a credo Baptist, wouldn't baptize a baby if they paid me, um, but we're not Protestants, I would hear. Well, and I actually start to read the Reformation you know, era leaders, Luther and Calvin, no, I don't agree with every last thing they ever said, you know, scripture is my standard, just like it was theirs, but I, I look back to those uh, key figures, and what were they doing? In Latin, they called it semper reformanda, always reforming. Well, does that mean you're always, always changing and you can do, be anything? No, you're always reforming in light of the norm. And they called scripture the norming norm. If I can't have a discussion with my King James only brother where God's inspired word is the ultimate standard, instead, it's got to be the translation of his word. That's the standard then we've lost our norming norm, and we've let, it's exactly what you said, we've let Mishnah, the oral tradition, make void the word of God because the Bible does not promise the things that the King James only world is saying that it does. You know, Mark, out of that, how can, how, how can you preach a single word of the Bible with confidence if, if we don't have 100% confidence in the perfect preservation of every word? That is a question I take very seriously because actually my experience was being in that King James only world, gaining a love for the Bible and some real skill in reading it and honor for it, a trust in it, but then going to a world, a different sliver of fundamentalism where I really heard it exposited in context. And wow, I saw the difference. And I developed a feeling in my heart, I must never stand in front of God's people and say, thus saith the Lord, without as much confidence I can have, having prayed and studied, that this is what he actually said. The, 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 the thing I fear the most is the Lord tapping me on the shoulder and saying, you know, I, actually, I, I never said that. 
So I never want to preach anything that isn't in the Word of God. But I guess I'd say this. Uh, number one, we already talked about how God doesn't promise to give me perfect preservation, so I shouldn't demand it. Number two, I'd say, you know, if you actually look at the differences on kjvparallelbible.org, I put them all out there for everybody to see in English between the TR and the critical text. The, the actual level, the significance of those differences pales in comparison to the interpretational differences that exist within different denominations. And so I look at myself as much more likely to be tripped up in my Bible teaching by my failure to study well, by my failure to put the whole Bible's teaching together on a particular topic, by, you know, by my poor homework in Greek or Hebrew or something, than by these very minor variations that occur in the Greek New Testament, my sermon is not going to be affected by, did the star come and stand over baby Jesus, or did it come to rest over him? And the vast majority of the differences between the texts are just like that. There are a few that are more, more serious, but those are, the, those are the, the, the vast majority of them. So my limitations and my fallenness as an interpreter are far more likely to lead me astray than these very minor textual variants. The sad thing is that a lot of my friends, pastors' kids, missionaries' kids, have walked away, I, I believe, primarily over this issue. They were taught such a strict, hardline, non-flexible view of Scripture that, by the way, is extra-biblical, interestingly enough, mm -hmm. that when they realized that the things they were taught were not true and that maybe there were some variants and maybe they couldn't explain one verse, for them, their entire faith fell apart because it stood on the foundation of, of the King James the King Bible James. rather than the Bible. Exactly. Right. So this is wow. very, this is an issue I'm passionate about because I've seen it hurt people deeply and I believe it hurts yeah. the gospel. I'm not passionate about it. I'm in it for the money. <laughs> well, speaking of it, in it for the money, you've written the book authorized. How can we get that book? I asked my publisher, and I work for the publisher, although I didn't at the time that I wrote the book, it's hard to explain, but uh, to make a, a, a promo code. So RFP authorized, all caps, one word, RFP authorized, you can get, I think they told me 40% off any version of authorized, Logos, paperback, or audio. And I recorded the audio, and boy, was that fun. And I do some accents in there. So if you uh, have a long drive ahead of you, Want to put it on double speed, that might be fun. I've actually listened to it. So speaking of accents, before we wrap this episode up, I want to impress JC because I don't get that opportunity you know, very often. And JC, there's things that you don't know about me. And so, so I just want to just, just give a little blurb very quickly. And, and Mark, you can, you can help me out with this, and then you can tell him what I've just said. But para nostra, quies en cala, sanctificator, nomen tuum, aduenia regnum tuum, fiat voluntas. So just... just our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Wow. Did you grow up in the Catholic Church or something? It's something no, like but uh, the most sought-after class in one of the high schools that I went to was Latin yeah. because our teacher was in her 80s, and we would take turns crawling out of the class and, and goofing off during the class, and she wouldn't miss us. And so we would take turns doing that. So everyone wanted to be in Latin, and so I was in there, and believe it or not, along the way, I actually started to like it. So I, I actually know some Latin. How you like that, JC? Acuna Matata. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, I think if there's one clip out of this, which I think multiple will get put out there on the internet, 
but your clip where you're saying, I'm in it for the money, yeah. that's going to be the one clip that makes it, uh, I mean, most IFB churches don't show videos during sermons, yeah. but they're going to start after that. Mark Ward is in it for the money. And you can look at my YouTube monetization for my channel, which talks a lot about the King James, and see that I have to admit to everybody out there, if, when I cash in, I'm going to take my family to Five Guys Burgers and Fries. That's nice. So once again, you can go to Logos.com, use the promo code RFP, authorized, all in capital letters, and get 40% off of the book in paperback or audio form. That code expires on May the 1st. Man, I'm excited about these next three episodes. It's going to be exciting. We are jumping into what the Bible says about Bible translations on the next episode. Wow. It's going to be great. JC, you might wake up for that one. There's a good chance I will. <laughs> Get a couple of coffee and Chick-fil-A in me. We're good to go. Hey, y'all have a great week. Be sweet. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. Be sure to stop by our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Give us a follow. Also, go to our website, recoveringfundamentalist.org. That's recoveringfundamentalist.org. There you can find Recovering Fundamentalist swag. You can get your t-shirts and hats. You can join our ex-fundy community. See where we're going to be having some meetups. It's the recoveringfundamentalist.org. Be sure to join us next time for the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast.